0: Hi, this is Amber Horsburgh. I'm the creator of Deep Cuts and I run Fanbase Accelerator. You're listening to your morning coffee podcast with my friends Jay and Mike. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Hypebot and Mark Mulligan at Media, with 100,000
1: tracks uploaded daily, a long tail music call is coming. From Bloomberg, record labels ask TikTok to share more of its $12 billion. From Billboards, sped-up songs are taking over TikTok and driving songs up the charts. And from Marketplace, YouTube's
2: automated copyright tool riles up musicians. Mm. Oh my goodness, Jay, so many things to talk about. Yes, you are with Jay and Mike. This is the Your Morning Coffee podcast, and Jay and Mike will start the show right about... uh, now.
1: Stand by for transmission.
2: This is London calling.
0: Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air, 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 the for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority.
2: All right, Jay, so nice to see you, brother, on a Sunday. We kind of bounce between Saturday and Sunday, so today we're Sunday in the afternoon. Yeah. It's a a good day. It's a sunny day here in
1: Southern California. Yeah, typically it's Saturdays, but, you know, sometimes life gets in the way, and that's fine, (laughs) and here we are on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. Yes, it was, and oh, what a lovely introduction, was that not? Yes, thank you, uh, Amber, uh, Amber Horsborough, for uh, this great uh, intro. Um, if you don't know about Amber, check out her school of deep cuts. Um, if you Mm -hmm. want to learn more about, uh, the music industry and it's really kind of a hands on uh, training for people who want to learn things about, uh, music marketing, but what she has that I'm really excited to kind of share with folks. uh, I've used this for years is she has this music marketers toolbox and it's basically a Google doc with everything you need if you're a music marketer. Um, And it's a free resource. Um, So we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, But instead of me telling you about it, I, I talked to Amber this last week about it. Here's what she had to say. Hi, Amber. Tell us about your Music Marketers Toolbox.
0: I created the Music Marketers Toolbox, I did this back in 2017 when I was running strategy at Downtown Records and really it was a way to categorise all the tools and websites and technology and apps that me and my team used to work on, um, work on records and market the records. I basically just, I I categorized it. I kept it as a running list for my team. And then when I ended up leaving the label and starting Deep Cuts, I decided to publish it because there was no place online where you could really, um, you know, there was no place online where you could find in one spot what are all the reputable tools and resources that uh, an independent artist can use. What I find really useful about um, the, the Music Marketers Toolbox now is it's a growing list it's up to 163 tools I believe um, since when I'm recording this in November of 2022 and I keep it updated every single year I do a big audit of it and what I like about it is when you start from a blank sheet of paper when you're promoting a record it's really hard because you have the tendency to want to reinvent the entire you know you want to reinvent the wheel you forget things that have worked in the past you start to build up your own systems and processes and that all takes time. What I've realized is there are really, there's a whole suite of tools that are available to you that the the, the same tools that labels use, um, but that DIY musicians can use as well. And when you start from the tools, it actually gives you an idea of what's available and what the landscape actually looks like. And then it also ensures that you can, uh, it it gives you a bit of a leg up because you're not starting from scratch. You're not building your own software or you're not building out your own Google sheets or, Uh, you know corresponding with bloggers or whatever it is that you want to do there's usually a a tool that has been built and is available to you so the way that it works is it's basically it's a spreadsheet it is broken up into the main functions of music marketing um, which are playlisting and streaming social media and content creation social media management analytics advertising radio promotions uh, publicity and then I've also got in there um, just other resources that are like you know good fun and, yeah, it, it includes um, all the different tools that are available to you. So you've also got in there things like uh, I'll, I have a, a section in each which is my favourite tool per, um, uh, you know, per discipline. Um, I have all the pricing information in there, which I keep relevant and up to date. I include how I personally use the tools um and that yeah and then that gives people who aren't so familiar with all the different resources an idea of you know what's even available to them things like pre-saves or email list building or pitching tools third-party playlist pitching um you know even like social content creation gif creation all that kind of stuff that you might be thinking oh I want you know I want my social media to look better or I want but I don't have the I don't have the skills to be able to do it myself so that's what the Music Marketers Toolbox is. The cool thing about the 2022 update is all the students of my um, flagship program, which is Fanbase Accelerator, collaborated on this version. So it's not just my personal list of things that I personally use, but it's a list that's now been crowdsourced by over 600 students that are in my courses. And they put it together as a list of you know of things that they use so you know that they tested you know that independent artists are actually using them um and they're free on the internet a lot of them are free on the internet or free with a a trial to sign up so yeah it's a good one um i use it every day it's all constantly open up on my um my browser so that's why i decided to build it and that's what's in it and you can get it it's free um just go to amberhorsby.com forward slash toolbox
1: tell us about your world of deep cuts
0: um, the world of deep cuts. So I, my background is I've been a marketer, music marketer for my entire career. I've worked with labels like Atlantic Records, Interscope, Downtown Records. I've worked with, oops, I will turn that off. Um, I've worked with music brands like YouTube Music, uh, Sonos, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify. Um, who else have I worked with? I th- yeah, uh, i forgotten the list. And then also with artists directly. And what I did in 2021, I uh, stopped working with labels and started building out Fanbase Accelerator, which is a course for independent artists and managers that gives them the tools to promote their records like a major label. A bit in the vein of the a Music Marketers Toolbox in that what I recognise is the tools that I use at labels are the same that are available to independent artists, you know, with the exception of, you know, budgets for radio promotion. But um, that's not really the artist that I'm working with in my programs. And so what I do is I give them all the tools. You get my entire Google Drive of everything from, you know, budgeting templates, budgeting calculators, release playbooks, um, spreadsheets that'll get you organized from like 30 days out of a release, 60 days, 90 days out of release. Um, you know, social media plans, all that kind of stuff. And then I run you through a program of putting together a release strategy. And what's been really cool is just seeing all the different artists across all different genres that I'm working with, being able to apply the same systems and and come out with all these different results. So I've, I've had artists that have been able to quit their retail job and do music full-time within like four months of starting the course. I've had artists who have signed record labels off the back of a, their very first EP. I've had artists who have launched their very first single, got 50,000 streams on it. So what I wanted to do is create a program that is designed for people to get really quick results as a shortcut rather than just like a content dump of here's a whole bunch of thoughts and feelings about music marketing and you know, interesting things that I might find interesting, but um, for an artist who is really stretched thin in terms of what they're able to do, um, you know, they're working on making the music, they might have a day job themselves, they're working towards doing music full time and then they've got to turn around and promote the records. I want for those artists who feel that they're stretched thin to give them that shortcut, which is like, come in, grab my Google Drive, take all my resources, learn, um, you know, in the lectures, the foundations of music marketing to be able to set your records up for success. So that is what I do um, in there as well. I've got mini courses or uh, you know more specialized courses. Uh, so I've got a TikTok for musicians one. I've also got an Instagram for musicians one, a YouTube for musicians. Um, but my main um, my main signature program is kind of soup to nuts uh, fanbase accelerator, which basically gives you it's a it's a record label in your pocket or your internet browser, I guess is a better analogy. So yeah, that's, that's it for me. Um, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to chat about what I do. And um, I hope this helps. I hope this helps anybody who's listening.
2: She is such a sharp cookie. And yes, she is like, you know, when I, you always appreciate things uh, that or people in this case that have skills that I don't
1: have. Well, I appreciate you them, because right? you are, you know, yes, it's not just yes, about yes. having skills and, you know, you have skills that I don't and vice versa, which is great. But somebody like Amber who helps other people um, by sharing all of these things, and she has one other thing yes. we're going to add a, a link to, and that's her music marketing freelance Rolodex. So if you need somebody to do radio or sync or targeted online ads or whatever you need, she's got over 80 people um, that uh, she knows and trusts to do those uh, kinds of things. So, we'll put mm-hmm. the links in the show notes for both of these things. But uh, thank you, Amber, uh, for that. We really absolutely, appreciate it. Amber.
2: Thank you. And
1: it's a fantastic resource. And again, ah, you know, we've so you good. and I've talked so many times
2: on the show about, you know, in the early days of music marketing, there were just not that many. You know, there were. Everything wasn't the same, but, but, but they were little, you know, kind of verticals that you needed to focus on. Yeah. Uh, The the landscape is so dramatically more complex and complicated. And to have a resource like this is just bitching.
1: It it really is. You know, (laughs) you're standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. So absolutely. So definitely check that out. And if you like what you see, uh, you know, check out, um, Amber's uh, school of deep cuts. Um, I wanted to touch base before we get going here. Um, on the ledger which is glenn people's Mm -hmm. weekly um newsletter that if you subscribe to billboard pro um you get this and several others every week and we talk about it quite a bit because he's got this music index it's really interesting but this week he's uh talking about some of these earning calls and he has some takeaways that you and i can discuss you know because most publicly traded companies have recently released earnings for you know, this last quarter that ended September 30th. And as Glenn points out, most of the results have shown encouraging signs for investors and the music industry alike. So here are five quick takeaways uh, from those third quarter uh, earnings. Number one, the subscription business model is insulating creators and rights holders from economic uncertainty. Music royalties are popular with investors, right? In part, um, because they're counter-cyclical, he says, meaning their returns have little correlation with changes in the broader market. I thought that was really interesting.
2: Absolutely. Well, And kind of even leading into that, he mentions that there's sort of two things going on, which is this sort of stability in the music business, but also the fact that the the company's stocks were not performing very well. So it's a, it's an interesting time in terms of inflation and things like that, although it seems like it's kind of pulling out of that. But then uh, one of the things he also mentioned is, is about podcasts. He said podcasts are a growing, stabilizing force. Spotify's podcast business has rightly captured the headlines, um, of course, but uh, you know generating advertising revenue and it yeah. improves the gross margins. But So this isn't necessarily hugely about music but it's just saying that podcasting has really stabilized things for a lot of these music music streaming companies because yeah. it brings in more revenue they're not necessarily paying or paying the same amounts of money for right. that so we're seeing a big that being a growing stabilizing force yeah
1: absolutely and you know next up audiobooks so the next one is, uh, with share prices relatively low, Glenn points out, companies are increasingly buying back shares to bolster shareholder value and help share prices. Um, among the companies currently engaged in stock repur- per- repurposed programs are Spotify, um, MSG Entertainment, Cumulus Media, Audacity, SiriusXM, um, Town Square Media, and Live One. And I thought that was uh, really interesting and not something I would have thought of. And I haven't. I didn't know that. I mean, that's that's something that I d-
2: had not paid attention to, hadn't yeah, noticed. Either. So, so that was really fascinating. Uh, number four that he mentioned is the strong growth in, as he in quotation marks refers to, rest of world markets. So, and we've talked about this a few times with various articles over the last year or so about the a, a lot of these out you know uh, historically underrepresented markets, I suppose, sure. really coming online, and that is a huge, huge thing. They mentioned leaves revenue in Asia Pacific and Africa grew 61% to 52 million euros wow. uh which is about the same as its European rev- revenues excluding France and Germany so and Spotify's rest of the world markets increase uh, improved their share of monthly active users to 26% in the third quarter up from
1: 21% in the prior yeah. year period so yeah. again these so are coming online absolutely yeah and the last one number 5 spin-offs are going to separate high growth high potential businesses um, MSG Entertainment plans to spin off its MSG Sphere venue, currently under construction in Las Vegas, along with its Tau uh, Hospitality Group. And, and if you don't know uh, MSG, Madison Square Garden, you know uh, they control Radio Music Hall, uh, Radio City Music Hall, and MSG Networks, and a sports broadcast network. So, super interesting stuff. I, I highly encourage you to subscribe to Billboard Pro, and then you get glenn's uh, insightful um newsletter every week it's called the ledger
2: yes it is and uh, again like amber stuff it's it's areas of not my expertise and so i appreciate when people make it really easy for me to <laughs> digest these things big thanks to glenn um and boy you guys have been busy over
1: there at, at your other podcast jay behind the set list good lord when thanks. do you sleep <laughs> Thank you. We had a fun uh, a fun week. We recorded two new episodes that they were just really fascinating. Um, one with country artist Sonny Sweeney. She's got a new album called Married Alone. It's phenomenal. She is just a firecracker. I have a deep respect for her. And then one of my favorite bands, um, Alter Bridge. Um, you know, three of the four guys from Creed. They have a new album out called uh, Pawns and Kings. And we had an interview with them uh, from Germany. And uh, the Music Biz Weekly podcast, we recorded an episode, kind of an unusual one this last week, with um, David Leaf. And uh, he's he's got this book that we talked about called God Only Knows, The Story of Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys, and The California Myth. And I know that's something that's near and dear to your heart because you've worked with Beach Boys music. You've worked with Capital, So I'm sure oh, you yeah. know a little bit more about how the sausage is made uh, on that. But I did get the book, and uh, it's it's... In Orbit. It's going to be uh, on my list here pretty pretty soon.
2: Well, he has been a long time chronicler of all things Beach Boys and a lot of great books, and he's very entrenched in the camp. And, you know, it's, rem- it's really remarkable when you think about the Beach Boys that we're still talking about the Beach Boys, and their music is still—you still hear it. They're still out on the road, various incarnations. And yeah. they predated the Beatles, you know. Their first records were around 61 and 62. Yeah. I mean, that's— that's 60-plus years ago. And they were and so
1: influential, right? I mean, people think of them as kind of that uh, Jan and Dean, you know, surf sound thing. That was one mm-hmm. lifetime. But as Brian Wilson kind of spread his wings a little bit and, you know, recorded Pet Sounds, Paul McCartney has made it very clear that the reason Sgt. Pepper happened is because he was in direct competition with Pet Sounds. And those that's high praise. And as Brian would say, the reason that
2: pet sounds happened was because rubber soul happened. And so, you know, there was all of this, you know, and, and, and Brian, you know, really even a little teeny bit or yes, almost a little bit before the Beatles was really kind of doing that in the studio for a long period of time and, you know, really directing everything and controlling
1: everything. And that was very unique. Did I ever tell you that that my first paid photography gig was brian wilson i don't know if i ever told no, you no uh, you did not tell me. yeah him that. i was shooting in for the cover of a magazine and um i went to his house and his publicist uh met me there and um he, they said you know where, where do you want to start and i said well let's you know take some pictures here and they told me they had an upright piano in the back and so um after we took some photos in the front we went to the back and true story i'm taking photos of him playing piano And I stopped taking photos. I was just mesmerized. I'm sitting there staring at him because it was just me and him in the room. And after about uh, probably ten seconds, it seemed like eternity. He kind of looks over at me like, "Aren't you supposed to be taking photos?" I mean, he didn't say anything. (laughs) He just kind of looked at me like, "What are you doing?" And then, oh yeah, yeah. And I, I took photos and I took some pictures in his backyard and stuff. But it was for me, you know, he's one of those. Uh, living legends, uh, living icons, and it's uh, it was yeah. just such an honor to shoot him. But yeah, this book, um, can't wait to read it. Um, and he, and, uh, David Leaf also co-wrote Kiss Behind the Mask uh, with Ken Sharp, and it was interesting to hear about that because I have the book and I've read the book, but I didn't realize that it was basically a book David Leaf had written back in the late '70s, and that. Ken Sharp kind of brought back to life and added to it. So now I need to kind of reread that book. But David Leaf's written tons of books. He's a professor at UCLA. Um, Hopefully we can collaborate on something uh, at at UCLA. But uh, a lot of respect for him. And that was a really fun interview, too. Yeah, absolutely. And then we've got another survey coming up, which is pretty cool. Yeah, if you look in your morning coffee, there's a a media survey. And um, we're asking primarily artists and managers. How do you release music? And so they have this survey and if you fill it out, you get a chance to win, you know, a thousand dollars in prizes. The last, um, survey we did, you got a free report, um, by entering, Mm -hmm. but it it only takes a couple of minutes. And I highly uh, recommend if you, uh, um, are an, um, an artist or a manager that you fill out that uh, media survey. We really dig those guys over at media. And by
2: the way, man that never sleeps, uh, you got something going on over there at Cal State Northridge as well, right? Crazy.
1: Yeah, I had a guest lecture yesterday. And Colorado Colorado State. Yeah, that's where my daughter graduated Sheesh. from college. She's going to go back for her PhD next year. Um, so I've been out to Colorado State a lot, and their music business program is legit. I mean, it's a beast. And I'm so honored that in a, I think about three weeks I'm going to go out there to... Uh, uh, Fort Collins, and uh, meet up and do a guest lecture with their uh, music business program. But yesterday, I did a guest lecture with Cal State Northridge, um, Dave Bakula, who's a, a dear friend and and one of the best uh, people I know in the music industry when it comes to data. Um, but that was it was amazing. I mean, the the questions uh, these young I call them kids, but these young adults. Um, they are kids, (laughs) Jay. They are so insightful and and they're just looking at the business in a different way. And I, I think we talked for like two hours. It was, it was a lot of fun.
2: Wow. Wow. Well, in case you don't know, the man who never sleeps is also known as Jay Gilbert. He, is a music industry consultant. He's the curator of the fabulous weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter, which, of course, is the basis of this podcast. He's also a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, and Fox Home Entertainment. And yes, he goes to bed very late and wakes up very early. (laughs)
1: I'm like an old man. I'm in bed so early. It's great. Unless I'm going to a show. I'm the guy sitting across from me, my dear friend, Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups.
2: Yes, indeed. And speaking of staying up late, I, I went to see Psychedelic Furs in LA. What night was that? Thursday night, I what guess. What was the venue? From San Sandga- it was the Belasco Theater, which is downtown L.A. A beautiful theater. Really, and I went with with my friend Sam Gay from E.M. Uh, we met at EMI, and okay. and when I when I need go-to information on how vinyl is manufactured and timelines and all that stuff. Sam Gay is my man. Oh, uh, we should have he, him on. He knows so much. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, but it was, a, it was a late night, you know, and it's like, oh, that's right. I used to do this all the time, but it was a fun show. They, they sounded great, but, oh, I mean, it's a beautiful, you know, like there's so many things in downtown L.A. that are these beautiful old theaters that were built in the 20s, and this was one of those ornate. I sent you a picture, actually, from yeah. the yeah. from the show. and But, oh, boy, the sound was terrible I mean, oh the, the, you really? could tell the band the, the band Sorry sounded great
1: that. i mean they played great
2: but sure it was just that we were by the sound man and boy i could tell he was just fighting the room all night and i was gonna
1: ask you was happens. it the room
2: yeah it's the room yeah it's the room it, it must be a bear to to get a good sound in there and because they were really trying hard and, but it was a little too loud also so it was that kind of combination of too loud and and just not you know, a lot of weird overtones and stuff. It was, it was, I, I, I've been there, you know, if you've ever mixed a room, it's, uh, if it's, if it's fighting you, it's really hard to, to get it under control, but whatever. It's still fun to go out, see shows and see bands that were, you know, and these guys are gosh they are no kids I mean they, they started having hits in the or they started recording in the late 70s
1: Psychedelic first. but they still yeah. sound great you know yeah.
2: three original members I think so that's yeah, great
1: I'm gonna go see um, Immediate Family on Friday um, oh that's right they're, I know they're playing yeah they're fun. Fun. well they're gonna be playing near you too um I was thinking of even going up there, but this one's going to be so close to me. Um, But for those who who don't know Immediate Family, I mean, you do know who these guys are. You just may not know the name Immediate Family. And I think we've mentioned it before. You know, it's Danny Korchmar on guitar and it's Waddy Wachtel, and it's Russ Kunkel on drums and Leland Sklar and Steve Postel. I mean, these guys are on all of your favorite records, you know, at least a lot of mine, you know, like Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt and uh, James Taylor and Carol King's tapestry. And holy cow, there's a documentary that's just, I think, at the film festivals right now that's coming out. Um, I've only seen like 10 minutes of it, but uh, really looking forward to seeing uh, Immediate Family this Friday and and denny Tedesco is doing the documentary is he not I he think did so. the yeah. wrecking
2: crew yeah yeah, yeah. and of so course good. he's the son of the famous uh, studio musician tommy Tedesco.
1: so yeah. anyway we 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 are we are dig- we are, we are going all over the place today. i know it's well, well let's fun. before it's we positive. get into things we, we we need to thank our sponsors
2: yes we do Yes, we do. Uh, the Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our good and groovy friends over at Banzoogle. Built by musicians for musicians, Banzoogle is an all in one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission free, commission free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their very musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can jump over to Banzoogle.com and try it free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE.
1: I don't know if I ever told you, but my buddy Dave Cool, and yeah, that's really his name, Dave Cool. He's their uh-huh. uh, chief relationship officer at at Bandzoogle. and it's so funny when I get an email from him because you know the footer it says Dave Cool. Yes, that's my real name. <laughs> so good. Uh, the Your Morning Coffee Podcast that. is also brought to you by HypeBot. Since two thousand four, Hypot has chronicled the new music business and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla, Hypot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. My first app on my
2: first iPhone, Bands
1: in Town. Over 74 million
2: live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote
1: their tour dates
2: across all platforms.
1: Ah, yes. And we're, we're also so thrilled to have as a sponsor the Music Business Association, which I'm a member. Uh, for more than six decades, the Music Biz Conference has been the point of origin for inspiration and collaboration in the music business. Join us in Nashville May 15th through the 18th. And I think I told you last week, I've been attending this thing for 30 years.
2: That's right. And Jay loves to buy drinks for people at that event, so
1: you better go. That's what I'm saying.
2: So big thanks to Music Business Association, Banzoogle, HypeBot, and Bands in Town. Boy, we appreciate it. Could not do it without y'all. We so appreciate it. very much. Yes, indeed. All right, Jay, what do you say? Let's jump into some Let's stories here. The first one. The first one is from HypeBot and Mark Mulligan over there at Media. With 100,000 tracks uploaded daily, a long tail music cull is coming and mm. cull. Yeah. What was the exact definition of cull? I mean, it's,
1: it's trimming or is I it, thought I it mean, I know gathering, it, I mean, like gathering together, maybe culling so. something together. Um, I would you know, bet, Maybe so. Maybe. Yeah. He says that, you know, with that hundred thousand tracks being uploaded to Spotify and other, you know, DSPs, it's led to, you know, each of these DSPs housing, you know, a hundred million tracks. Okay. We talk about that pretty <laughs> regularly. Um, and as that total sort of balloons, artists and labels are overcrowded, fans are overwhelmed, and streaming services struggle to keep up. And as you mentioned, this is Mark Mulligan from Media, but he's also, um, you'll see him on the music industry blog, um, one of our favorite sources for music info.
2: So what he's saying too is you know if if especially given the, the the recent elections he says you know when governments plan to introduce controversial new policies they prepare the ground in advance including dropping hints and speeches private privately briefing journalists etc so that by the time the new policy finally arrives it does not feel quite so controversial. Genius. And as he as exactly as he said, a similar process is currently playing out in the music business. The biggest major label executives are starting to seed a narrative into the marketplace mm-hmm. about the potentially corrosive effect that the rapidly growing long tail of music and creators is having on consumers' music streaming experiences. Of course, it also happens to dent major label market share, too. Uh, well. But the issue is not quite as clear as that might first appear. Here. Yeah. But we're talking about uh-huh. three main industry constituents that are at risk from the fattening of the long tail, as he says. I'll let you take it from there.
1: Right. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> the first one is major labels and they're artists. Right. The second one, consumers. And then three, long tail creators. So let's, let's take a, a look um, at those three things. Um, major labels. And, and I was talking to a friend of mine about this this week. Because you have to look at these numbers a little bit because something in here really jumped out at me. And that is that, you know, over the course of like five years, 2016 to 2021, the majors grew recorded music revenue by 71%. Pretty impressive, right? Yes. Well, Mm -hmm. but take a look at the indies the indies grew revenues by 318% over the same period. You know, consequently, artists direct, you know, indie artists. Increased global market share from 2.3 percent to 5.3 percent in that same time period, um, while majors went from 68.8 and actually dropped to 65.5. So I thought that was really interesting. It's Jay. It sounds like you're telling me
2: that indies are taking some market share from the major labels.
1: Yeah, a little bit. So it's not all Weird. about you know people being overwhelmed. It's also about. You know, in this pro rata model that we talk about in your paid on market share, that's not a good thing if you're losing market share. No, it's not. No, it's not. So he,
2: other things, uh, other people to, to factor into this are consumers. Sure. He says this one is far harder to make a definitive case either for or against. Consumers tend to not categorize music anywhere near as precisely as the music business Absolutely. and we learned that back yes. back in our days of catalog marketing you know he yep. says uh, for example only a third of consumers say they mainly listen to older music despite industry stats showing that catalog consumption dominates <laughs> most consumers do not consider music to be old in quotation marks as soon as the music business does
1: right which so imagine that's that 18 month thing that we all talk yes, about right it's we like, always talk about that and you and I have pretty strong opinions about this uh this is a really good point because most consumers, he's saying, they don't think they really listen to old music. But if you designate it as catalog after 18 months, therein lies the discrepancy, right?
2: That's right. To them, a three-year-old track is not that old because yeah, it's not that old. I agree. But to the music business, that, that's twice the 18-month number. So it's been well-considered consu- well catalog by major labels. Exactly. So... um yeah, so so the so the consumers consistently hear... Well, so we're in the realms of measuring second-order effects, what they call. Are consumers disengaging from streaming? Not yet, but they might. End of making logical assumptions. If consumers consistently hear poor quality music, then it's reasonable to assume that their satisfaction would decline, maybe the quality of music Mm. being associated with indie acts or something like that. However, DSP Uh, algorithms push music that matches users' tastes, and there's so much high quality in the long tail that there's no particular reason to assume that more long tail consumption should inherently equate to an increase in consumption of poor quality music. So this is, Mm. uh, you know what it sounds like to me is, let me think of reasons why I want this to happen, Uh, and let me build a story and so here we
1: are. Yeah, and I'll right? be the first to tell you that, and you already know this: that you know whether it's indie or major doesn't necessarily have any bearing on the quality of the music. There is no. world class music, you know, put out by the majors, and there's world class music put out by indies. And I would argue that in sheer volume: there's more put out uh, by the indies. And yes, you could argue that when there's no barrier to entry, like let's say SoundCloud. There's some great music on SoundCloud, but there is some not so great music on SoundCloud because, you know, most of the DSPs have about 100 million tracks whereas SoundCloud has well north of 300 million, and you and I could record something in in, you know, our kitchen today and upload it to SoundCloud. There's really no barrier to entry. So that leads us into number 3, the long-tail creators. It may sound oxymoronic. I love that word to suggest that long-tail creators could be hurt by the rise of the long tail. But as Will Page puts it, the rise of the long tail means that there are more mouths to feed. The fractionalized nature of streaming royalties means that the more long-tail creators there are, the lower per stream counts there are, right? And even more important, the harder it is to cut through. So... It's, it's really interesting. This isn't gonna go away anytime soon. This is, you know, I don't know if you saw the photo I put in your morning coffee, but it was somebody actually drinking out of a fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> I did see that. It's crazy, but you know he's he
2: points out here the missing constituency in is the DSPs themselves, but they do not want to. They don't warrant a place here because they are the ones with the power to scale up or down long tail consumption via their algorithms. It serves DSPs to have listening fragment to a degree as it lessens the share and the share and therefore the power of any individual label. But if DSPs ever thought. They were pushing too far, then they would rein in the algorithms. So, this, like you were saying, this really feels like majors pushing something to get more more market share. And that's and let me show you reasons why we want that to happen. Say the majors. Yeah,
1: I, I, that's kind of the feeling I'm getting uh, about this because, again, indie music, um, although it may threaten the market share of some of the major labels. It's world-class. Um, it's great stuff. And there are things that are considered indie um, that are really sort of major because they come through the major indies. For example, mm-hmm. if music that comes out through The Orchard or Grooves or AWOL and Symphonic and some of these things, there's some amazing music coming through there. I remember when I was working with uh, Wea ADA, I'll, I'll cite some of the labels that we were working at that time were like Beggars, Sub Pop, Merge. You know, I mean... These things are, they're just like a major in the quality of the music they're putting out, but they're considered to be an indie, even though they're uh, maybe distributed um, by a major. Well, and, you
2: know, the the percentage of people that care is so small, you know, I mean, you know, I don't know what the number is, but my guess is it's like maybe 1% that people (laughs) didn't even notice What what label a given act that they or a song that they like and an artist they like and they're listening to?
1: Yeah, who cares? Well, you you and I do because we find this stuff interesting, and I know Elton John cares. But you are absolutely right. There was a time in the music industry when, let's say, it was you know Motown. Um, You know, you these labels had a particular uh, personality and sound. And as much as I love Interscope and Atlantic. Um, you don't say to me, hey, what came out on Interscope this week or Atlantic this week? Because there's so many different genres and moods and styles and everything that, you know, just because you like one, you, you may not like the other. So I, I would tend to agree with you, Mike. I, I think that's, that's spot on.
2: But as Mark says, so what's next? He says, so where does all this all leave us? He says, in the do-nothing scenario, let's say nothing happens, listening continues to splinter Majors lose more share. Long-tail creators find it hard to cut through and earn while consumers may or may not see any meaningful change to their listening experience. In short, the head loses out, as does the long-tail, while the market further consolidates around the body of streaming catalog, which, by the way, the majors are already key players in and could easily ramp up their focus, as 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 uh, WMG is already doing, actually, Warner Music Group. Then he says the do something options, so that's what happens if we don't do anything. So the do something options fall into two key groups. One is gate or limit consumer access to catalog. Hmm. Hmm. And number two is gate or limit creator access to royalties. I don't Hmm. like either of those, to be honest, Jay. He says there are many ways to achieve the first which is the gate-limit consumer access to catalog, preventing long-tail music getting onto DSP catalogs, lowering long-tail priority and algorithms, creating a separate tier of catalog, deprioritizing, blocking it from search and discovery, etc. All of this risks looking very much like the establishment trying to prevent the next generation of creator and industry breaking through. That is without even considering the moral dilemmas of choosing who is in and who is out.
1: Yeah, well, let's—I don't know if I agree with that. Let's look at option two, right? That could be more altruistic uh, than it looks, um, Mark points out. For an enthusiast hobbyist mm, with a few hundred streams, royalties are going to be a little more than a novelty. But for a hardworking, self-releasing singer-songwriter with tens of thousands of streams, the hundreds of dollars are already important— Let's consider that there was a payout threshold where a thousand annual streams are the point at which royalties are paid Mm -hmm. with all the royalties associated with the sub 1000 stream artists being distributed between all other artists. Suddenly, those slightly more established long tail artists can earn more income. Interesting. Interesting take on that. I don't know how I feel about that yet.
2: I don't either, but he says none of these options are without challenges and moral dilemmas. But the direction of travel appears to be towards something being done in quotation marks about the long tail. If that really does end up having to happen, then let us at least try to ensure that the changes benefit long tail artists too, not just the superstars. And as I'm sitting here kind of thinking about that, what what so so somebody like Spotify is in a bit of a a. a a trick bag here because they are owned by the majors. I mean, a percentage of them is owned by the major labels. So they've got that pressure of the major labels coming at them and saying, you know, trying to promote what they want to happen. Um, but then they also have a business case to say, well, because you know, for, for an independent artist to put stuff up, um, they pay a monthly fee or an annual fee or whatever it is, right? You can't. It's, it's very rarely to, for free that they put it.
1: Well, they 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 don't pay Spotify. They pay their distributor, which could be CD yes. Baby, Distrokid, Stem, whatever, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And so there's a but there's, there's
2: money, but but there's money coming in from artists whether they get played or not, and so somebody down the line makes money, uh, makes money by artists putting up their music, um, so. You know, so does this mean that maybe a um, a company that is is has investment from a major label will do one thing, and another DSP will do another, and, and they won't trim their long tail catalog. I it, mm. it, I could see sort of a weird scenario happening that, you know, like does Apple care what what the majors think what, regarding all of the tracks that are on their service? No, I don't think they Probably do at not. all.
1: But I think there's also a difference between what you and I consider the pure play dsp like spotify that that is their business and yes they're getting into audiobooks mm-hmm. and podcasts and all these other things but primarily that's their business whereas apple is just one of many businesses same with google but i tend to think that we might be overthinking this um unless there's some kind of server space i don't see how it harms um the business by having this massive amount of music, other than that, it might hurt the market share of certain labels, mm-hmm. um, and there could be some rules put in there to adjust for that. But in general, I'm a believer that, you know, it's it's fair game. It's a meritocracy. It's if you want to put up a great quality song, whether it's through TikTok or SoundCloud or wherever. Um, and get it to the digital service providers. I think you should have the same kind of shot that uh, Billy Eilish has. So, but that's just my opinion.
2: I, I agree. I agree. We we've also mentioned that website, Forgotify, uh, <laughs> yeah. that has a number it, that you can go on there and and be the first to listen to a, a, just a plethora of songs that have never been played before that are up on the services. Yeah. Um, I would love, to, and I don't know if you have ever seen this, but I would love to know what percentage of music on a given dsp has never been played that's that's on their in their system
1: yeah i had read an article for your morning coffee this is a while back and um there was like 17 million tracks that they had designated as wow. not being played once um but that's of course out of it's a hundred million now but i think back then it was maybe 60 70 million um, but yeah, I'd be interested to seeing that too. But anyway, it was I I 60, 70 was a, million. Yeah, yeah.
2: I thought this that, was, that's, uh, that's, that's 25% or give whatever. That's a big number that had never been played.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, so we'll see how this thing uh, plays out, but a really interesting take. Anytime Mark Mulligan writes anything, um, I'm going to read it. I've learned a lot from, uh, from Mark and his team over there at media. They do some of the best research, uh, in the music business globally. Oh, they're, just, they're awesome. Absolutely but i think the most interesting
2: thing about this is that there is our conversations being had right now uh and kind of kind of a um uh, uh, what's what's the phrase, what's the right word you know there there's sort of a story being set that i like the way they laid that out yeah like <laughs> i do too <laughs> yes uh, so that we we shall see where that goes but uh, a yeah. very interesting story from the guys over there big thanks uh let's go to to our second story sure. jay uh this is from bloomberg uh record labels ask tiktok to share more of its 12 billion dollars um yeah yeah big story this that week?
1: first call yeah because i'm hearing that the payouts are incredibly low and i believe our friend glenn uh, over at billboard is working on a piece to kind of dig in and find out how those payouts actually work. Um, I think he was talking about potentially doing that at some point. But this piece, as you point out, is from Bloomberg, and it was written by Olivia Salon, Lucas Shaw, and Giles Turner. Um, we don't put a lot of Bloomberg articles uh, in your morning coffee. They're they're very good. Um, but mm-hmm. typically, p- places like Music Business Worldwide and Media and Hypebot and variety. I mean, there's so many of these other sources, Rolling Stone, that tend to dig deeper into um, the music business and not just the financial part of it that I, I think maybe Bloomberg leans a little bit more towards. But this particular piece, I thought they they nailed it. Um, they kick it off by saying that TikTok has attracted more than a billion users You know, with videos set to music. Now, the world's largest record labels want the social media app to pay more for those songs. So it's Universal, Sony, Warner. They're asking TikTok to share the advertising, and that's key right there, the advertising revenue and increase their royalties Mm. that it pays them for the rights. According to people familiar with the talks, the companies have been negotiating all year. And are trying to reach a deal before their contracts expire in the coming months, said the people, who asked not to be identified. Interesting.
2: <laughs> This—it's Although it was, or maybe it was intentional, we're, we're kind of suddenly talking about the major labels trying to get their hands into lots of different p- pots of money at the moment. Uh, and... <laughs> I don't know if that's a coincidence or if, uh, yeah, yeah, I just don't know. Well, I think
1: that, you know, and and you and I have been in some of these meetings where there are companies that were trying to make their uh, revenue off the backs of music companies. And some of the Mm -hmm. teams that we worked for, it was their job to make sure that. Uh, They were paid for that. And there were some early things like people complain about MTV back in the day because it started off as this promotional thing that quickly became this bigger thing. And we're saying like, well, why aren't we being paid for this? Same with MP3 players, right? Same with a lot of different things. Social media, Peloton bikes, the list goes on and Mm -hmm. on. And TikTok is making their business uh, largely in part because of music. And it's my humble opinion that they should pay for that.
2: Agreed. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Um, But that's an awkward conversation to have,
1: (laughs) to say the least. You you just hit it right on the head. It's an awkward conversation, but why? And that why is, well, wait a second, we're blowing up your business in some ways, in a good way. I mean, like we're giving you all this business, so we're a promotional thing. But yet, you're also building your business on this so how do you strike that balance uh without you know killing this golden goose and what leverage do the majors have to 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 actually get it withhold their I mean, I music don't know. i guess but would you yeah. want to do that if it's promoting yeah and these aren't easy situations <laughs>
2: And do, or do you want to be the first, you know, even more? Yeah. Let's, I'm sure they all want to do it, but who wants to be the first? It's like the, the raising of rates, the pricing for, thing that you DSPs. talked about. Right. Yes, exactly. So I don't know. So any so according to the article, Jay, as TikTok has grown in popularity, has become one of the music industry's, obviously, most powerful kingmakers. Mm. Record labels rely on TikTok to identify promising artists and to market new releases. It's the single most important marketing tool the companies have, according to our friend Mark Mulligan. Uh, an analyst over at Media. Uh, it mm. says here, the social media app has started to profit from its popularity. It earned four billion dollars in revenue last year and is on track for twelve billion in 2022, hence the twelve billion yes. number. According to the research firm eMarketer, the music companies want TikTok to share more of that money. Compensating them with a cut of their advertising sales based on their place, got that okay? Uh, and as an executive at one of the major labels said, that TikTok should be paying between two and ten times more than its existing agreement based on similar relationships with other platforms with large audiences, such as Facebook and YouTube. Right, and as always they say, hard to, <laughs> go, go ahead. It's always hard to it's always hard to uh, to sign a contract and then and then renegotiate that quickly. It is, uh, but.
1: As they point out in this article, these these mm-hmm. contracts, these terms are coming to an end. So that's why the negotiations yes. are happening now. Uh-huh. The music groups are weighing how to best increase their payouts from TikTok without getting into a public dispute with one of their most important partners. That's what we were referring to. TikTok has positioned itself as a promotional tool that doesn't need to pay in the same way as Spotify or YouTube. Mm-hmm. We've heard this before it's a compliment to music listening not a replacement for it the company argues interesting mm-hmm. I, I see the, you know how they're going to play this yes exactly and
2: uh but of course the the owner of what would also makes it interesting is that you know the the parent company of tiktok is bite dance Uh, And don't forget, ByteDance has already created a paid music service called Reso in 2019 and introduced it in three markets. These are out of the U.S. markets. But Reso has tens of millions of monthly active users, according to people familiar with the business. But the service has thus far struggled to convert many of them into paying subscribers. But if if we talked about an article maybe three weeks ago, I think, Mm -hmm. about them expanding Reso. So when we talked about leverage... So suddenly, if they're going to expand their their music, their paid music service, they need they need the catalogs. So this is, I, su- I suppose, where we're going to see that leverage being played out. Is that yeah, okay? So you don't want to pay that money? Then we're not going to license our our catalogs to Reso. So there's the there's the lever.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right there. Right. And Perhaps. I th- I think you have to look at majors versus indies too, because if you look at Sony, mm-hmm. Warner, Universal. Th- they've all announced that their current deals, you know, with TikTok, they're, they're coming up. You know, um, in like one of them is uh, this month. You know, I think they said uh, I think Sony is November, which is now. Warner is January 2021. Universal's February of 2021. So th- these companies continue to collect flat fees instead of a cut of revenue or a cut of um, advertising, in part because mm-hmm. TikTok was just starting to figure out its advertising business, and those contracts last for two years. They're just about to expire. Although the parties tend to reach short-term extensions you know, during re- negotiations rather than letting you know, the contracts lapse. So that's the major side. On the indie side, TikTok's deal with Merlin, which represents indie labels, that expired at the start of the year and the two sides have a short-term extension to avoid needing to remove (laughs) remove music from the service. So record labels and publishers gave TikTok a license to monetize their catalogs while they figured it out, uh, Mark Mulligan said. And uh, he said, now they've figured it out. Well, he mentioned, Mark mentions the label's uneasy
2: relationship with TikTok, which uh, Mark described as being schizophrenic, reminds executives of their decade long disputes with YouTube and Facebook. Music companies criticized their business partners in Silicon Valley for years claiming they didn't do enough to halt piracy and that they got rich off their work. YouTube and Facebook positioned themselves as marketing tools, as, as you mentioned that TikTok is as well. But don't forget, record labels push YouTube to offer a subscription-based music service, arguing it would make a fortune if it converted even a small percentage mm-hmm. of its 2 billion users into yep. paying customers. And there, YouTube's initial forays into paid streaming bore little fruit, and many music executives believed YouTube wasn't really trying. What? Ah, there it is. All right, but yeah, but but of course that 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 it they did try, and of course it's added more than fifty million paying customers. We're going to actually give some some other numbers uh, later that are very impressive. So you know you can kind of see, but yet to your point when you were talking, we used to see this all the time: this battle between content creators and owners, and. Uh, and Silicon Valley or tech startups, you know, every, yeah. everybody's got a different different view of of who's right and what their priorities are, and this is this has gone this has gone for the last twenty plus years. Yeah, it, well, it's still going.
1: Well, this is really super interesting. Great piece. Um, we're going to be watching in the coming months as these uh, new contracts happen. Um, because my uh, my gut tells me they're going to be paying a little bit more for the music that they've uh, made 12 billion dollars <laughs> on in 2022 right
2: <laughs> i'm pretty sure that's going to go happen. absolutely now uh you know every every now and again there's a story where i go oh yeah i'm an old guy <laughs> i don't get fill in the blanks this next story is i don't get this from a from a song interest standpoint. This is from Billboard. Sped up songs are taking over TikTok and driving songs up the charts. Yeah. Sped up songs. Yeah. Uh, It's a thing. It's a thing. I've been seeing a a lot of this
1: lately. Um, Actually, for the last year, I've seen a ton of this. The story is uh, written by our friend Elias Light uh, for Billboard. And, you know, he says that hard charging reworks of popular singles have been thriving on the social media platform, meaning TikTok, and that labels are leaning into the trend. And I first started seeing this about a year ago with some of these, I'm looking at uh, the discographies on digital service providers and I'm seeing, you know, sped up songs. I'm seeing reverbed songs. I'm seeing slowed down songs. And as I kind of Googled it, I, I found that, it's what this article says. They're basically people are making TikTok videos to these verge versions. Yes, and some of them are silly. You know where it sounds almost like a mouse. It's sped up so fast. Some of them it's very subtle. You know, um, yeah. I believe it was Ghost Mariana Cross. There's a version, but they're they're kind of like the soundtrack to some of these short form video uh, that you see on TikTok and, and their competitors.
2: Yeah, but by themselves, just the music part of it is just, uh, in many times, to me, unlistenable. It's like, oh my god, that's horrible. You know, um, well, you're, but,
1: you're not sixteen. No,
2: I'm not sixteen. <laughs> I'm I'm several multiples of sixteen. Um, I, I, yeah, I just don't get it. And I, there, there, I am feeling like an old guy. But uh, you know, but but you know, it's interesting too. Is that again, these songs aren't meant to necessarily stand alone. Right, they're really I don't meant know. to
1: accompany a video, yeah, or are they? I, I, I think they are. I think, um, you know, l- there's a quote in here from Josh Berman. He said, "Sped up tracks feel like a thing," and and I was not expecting it to happen to uh, Thundercat. Uh, that Thundercat song, "Them Changes," you know, that's uh, they mm-hmm. mentioned in the article. Mm-hmm. It's steeped in funk history, you know, and and they they talk about some of these songs and all these different label reps that are starting to jump on board, you know, so sped up versions of songs, especially older ones, you know, have thrived on TikTok TikTok for years. You know, Demi Lovato track, Ellie Goulding's Lights, uh, Sam Smith's I'm Not the Only One, Nelly Furtado's Say It Right. There's a lot of these things. And I guess, you know, they say they've been around for years. I didn't notice them really years ago, although I have heard some of those versions as I'm going through TikTok and I hear a sped up song Or a slowed down song. I had just assumed that the user, the end user was doing that, not that it was an official release. Right. And, and, end users can do that, you know, with, with the tools now
2: that are out there, it's so easy to do that. Um, in the article, this um, uh, uh, Nima Nasseri, who's the global head of A&R Strategy for Universal Music Group's Music Strategy and Tactics team, she said, and I remember this, of course, back in the day, we used club remixes to ver- to diversify the visibility of a record, and I was involved in a number of those things. Uh, and She said the, um, uh, the purpose was to bring back visibility to the main version. This is what's interesting. Now people are discovering the main version from the sped up or slowed one. Instead of spending 50 thousand dollars for a remix from some big name dj you're spending relatively minimal amounts on a sped up rendition and getting much more return and reach yeah. it's simple to do you know if you yeah. know anything
1: about these tools right yeah and um tadiana uh Sarisano, um over from media she said that we're seeing in consumer surveys how much gen z wants to actively participate in music and we see this all the time with short form video Um, and with social media, with YouTube and editing and, um, it could be loops and beats and, um, you know, edits, uh, the end user is now because of technology is now able to participate in a much deeper way than maybe when you and I were growing up in the business. Right now, you know, we
2: talked about other, you know, about, listeners making these mixes and of course historically the music industry has not been comfortable with unauthorized mixes um Uh, but the, but the the two folks co- co- uh, talked in here who, who worked for that department at UMG. Uh, they, they mentioned that you know, even with them kind of trying to trying to get the the, in, the internal labels to do it, they initially encountered a lot of resistance from artists' team when they started pushing to release official tempo version tempo altered versions of singles. And they said it was six months of explaining to people what this is and begging them to approve it. And and they said there was a long period of trust us on this in quotation marks. Uh, But they're, you know, they're basically selling it internal at these labels as this is the new remix. This is better than a remix. So, you know, this is I, I suppose this is just another thing that's happening and that's. You know, and we've been, again, we've done club mixes and stuff
1: like that for the last 40 years. So, yeah, but you have to have a special skill to do a remix. Yes. In a good way, I think. Absolutely. But if you're speeding up, slowing down, reverbing something, I think anybody can really kind of do that. And, uh, my friend Johnny Cloherty, um over from Songfluencer, um, was quoted in this uh, article. He said that the platform is a wash. The platform, meaning TikTok, is a wash in sped-up versions, slowed-down versions, clap track versions, versions that are super heavy on reverb, like turned all the way up to eleven, kind of shit. He said, you know, and everybody's experimenting with with this stuff. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you <laughs> saw this stat in here. I thought it was really interesting. This uh, Jacob Burns, who's a director of uh, creator relations and content strategy for Universal Music, um, said that uh, he recently had a meeting with TikTok marketing uh, that informed him that, are you ready for this? That 80% of the top 100 sounds on TikTok were tempo altered. Some sprint while wow. others crawl. 80%. What? Sheesh. Okay.
2: It's a thing. It's a real thing without a doubt. Um, yeah. Oh, but it's coming. It's yeah. there. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and there you have it. So interesting we'll interesting trend one. though, yeah, It right? is interesting. Of course it is. Absolutely. The, the, but, other, the uh, last
1: thing I'll say on this thing is, uh, I don't know, this is maybe 10 years ago. I, I, I started seeing these videos on YouTube that were just the uh, album Im- image and then the audio bed. And I was thinking to myself, this isn't a video. This is just the audio. Right. And why Why is this a thing? And then in the coming years, I learned because people make playlists out of it and because a user can create it. And I think it's similar to some of this stuff, that there's a low barrier to entry that anybody can do it, and there's a purpose for it. And, you know, look, if it leads them to uh, listen to more music by your artists, why not?
2: Yeah. Okay, I, I just it's <laughs> I'm, I I feel like the uh, I feel like the Clint Eastwood character you know where he says get off my lawn yeah um, yeah. yeah All that's, right. That's I, I get I that so, yeah yeah exactly all right our last story is YouTube's automated copyright tool riles up musicians Jay that's in Marketplace um, yeah I, I you know I I I know a little bit about the this but I, I thought know you might a ton
1: about the tool well you know we hear I about I don't know much you know we we hear about these people that we love and we look at their YouTube channels. Um, Rick Beato is one, for example, and you will see him, you know, play his guitar and show you how this one intro was played. And I love that stuff. And I know he's run into issues as well. Um, but you know, there's this content ID for people who don't know that let's just Mm -hmm. use YouTube. For example, YouTube's uh, content ID that will quickly and (laughs) accurately, um, typically In quotation marks. Yes. They'll, f- they'll figure out really quickly if you're playing somebody else's music, even if you're not using their master recording, even if you're doing uh, showing somebody how that riff was played. And I reached out to a music uh, uh, industry attorney of mine and I was saying like, well, wait a second. Is, isn't that, doesn't that fall under fair use? And the one thing I've learned from uh, attorneys is is, um, there's really not black and white when it comes to the law, that there's, you know, it's how it's done, when it's done, where it's done. There's all sorts of variables. But the thing that he kind of educated me on was they're not pulling this down from YouTube in these instances that I was citing. They're demonetizing them. There's a big difference. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, If they yank down your stuff, that's one thing. And then I, so I started talking to a friend of mine who does this not for a living, but does a lot of these uh, kind of like lessons online where he shows you how a certain lick was played or a riff or something like that. And he was mm-hmm. upset saying, well, how can they demonetize? I'm the one doing the work. And I said, well, I kind of see their side though, because this is the publisher owns this, you know, or the artists or whoever it is, you know, the underlying music. So shouldn't they be properly monetized too? Well, it, my
2: understanding of publishing, though, is that uh, the only thing you can copyright is lyrics and melody. So if I play the bass line, and, and it mentions this in here, l- let's say I go online and, and I, and I, this, one of the people interviewed here does a kind of a, basically, it's sort of guitar lessons. And he mentioned he, he played a, the, the bass line for Africa, the Toto song. Right. And it got, and it got yanked. Okay, so that bass no, line... no, it didn't get best yanked. Of my, it, got it, 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 yes. it got demonetized. it got demonetized. Exactly, same thing, but sort of, but the, almost the same thing. Eh. To, uh, if I understand publishing correctly, the baseline in Africa is not copyrighted. The melody and the lyrics are,
1: but not the bass line or the drum part. Is that right? Or the synth line?
2: I, I believe case. we need the to case. ask
1: a lawyer um, because you yes. per- you could be right. I don't know. I really don't. I'm going to make a note. I think that's I'm going to find yeah. out. Yeah. We'll find that out.
2: Um but you know it's I mean it's again it's one of those things that is important and I I'm with you, you know. I think if, if it's a a full song then it should be uh properly monetized to whomever has the copyright on that. But if you're just kind of playing the 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 parts of it individually or like the I don't know. It, it seems to me that that and that's I mean, that's what Rick Beato complains about, and and yeah. lots of other p- people as well. It's like, hmm. yeah, it seems not right.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's really right. interesting. But we'll we'll do some more digging around on this. I just, I threw it in there because I thought it was really interesting. You know yes. that this is actually a a thing, and I love those videos just like you do. Rick Beato is one of my favorite uh, destinations Absolutely. on YouTube. Um, it's just yes. a joy to watch these videos and how he talks about, you know, how a song was constructed or he'll play a part or he'll show you the chord structure of a song. And it's, it's just gold. It's just so great. And so, uh, I'm hoping that there is some fair use involved in this where we can have people like Rick Beato do these things. So I just thought I'd bring it up.
2: Yeah, it's a good it's a good one. So anyway, on that note, definitely check it out, and we're going to get back to everyone on that. Yes, as well. we will. And we talked to some some legal minds that are certainly greater than ours. And on that note, we are going to wrap up this episode. Boy, Jay and I certainly appreciate you listening yes. in. We also want to thank our sponsors: the Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Boy. We are so appreciative to have them as partners tremendously. So on behalf of Jay Gilbert, the man who never sleeps, and myself, we say thanks. And we'll see you next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast.
0: You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.